Hear now the word of the Lord. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. So we have been going over the marks of the church the last few weeks, and today we come to the last one in this short series. And so what is a mark of the church, or a mark of a church, and why is it necessary? And well, what I mean by a mark is a visible impression that is made by Jesus Christ. That's what a mark is. So how can you tell a church is, in fact, a church. This was an important question for the Reformers, and it should be an important question for anyone who believes that they are a part of a church. If I had said that, if you belong to Jesus, there is a mark on the third knuckle of your left hand, everyone would immediately check to see their left hand. On the third knuckle, if there was indeed a mark. Now, as I've said before, the true mark of the church is its submission to the scriptures. It's its submission to the word of God. But that is delineated most often to three things. That means in the very least, a church must have these three things on display for it to be a church. And they are, number one, faithful preaching. Number two, faithful administration of the sacraments. And number three, faithful church discipline. Faithful preaching you might get easily. And after some study, even the faithful administration of the sacraments. But you may wonder, how is church discipline one of the major marks of the church? And is it in the Bible? Well, the answer, of course, is a resounding yes, with even Jesus specifically mentioning it in the verses that we read this morning. You see, verse 20 is a very popular and familiar verse to a lot of people. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. What does that mean, though? Does it mean if two people meet for coffee at McDonald's, Jesus is at McDonald's with them? Does it mean what a lot of contemporary people use it in reference for when, it, when they keep chanting, quote, the church is not a building, unquote, the church is not a building, and they instead meet over a meal in someone's house? By the way, I found the statement intriguing. I've always found that statement intriguing. The church is not a building. I've never seen a family chant, the house is not the home. 
Yet most families have no problem saying, let's go home. By that, they mean, let's go back to the house. And we call people without houses homeless. But we'll save this topic for another time. But what does verse 20 mean? Does it really mean that we can have church wherever two or three people are gathered in Jesus' name since he will then be there? Is that what it means? Verse 20 is in reference to what? Verse 20 is in reference to what verse 18 and 19 is saying. And verse 18 and 19 is in reference clearing up what is meant by verses 15 to 17. That's why we took this as a chunk. So what are the verses before verse 20 referencing? That's right. It's referencing church discipline. Some might say, uh, we don't need discipline here. This is where you would find sanctuary instead. And by sanctuary, what they really mean is absolvement of every sin and or wicked deed. And while it is true that in Jesus Christ our sins are forgiven, our entire slate is wiped clean, and not only that, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we also obtain for ourselves the merit of what he has accomplished. That means we get our sins wiped clean and we get Jesus' righteousness imputed to us. And now what? And now we get to live according to the righteousness of God. Just because you have your sins wiped clean and Jesus' righteousness imputed to you, it doesn't mean you could keep on going around stealing or killing, right? So why this aversion to church discipline. This kind of conversation might be familiar and unfortunately maybe far too common nowadays. Hey Bob, how's life? It's good Joe, how's yours? It's also good, like really good. These days, it's like I found a new me. Oh yeah, how so? Well, God told me that it's okay that I, and insert the sin. Uh, no, I don't think God told you that. Well, how would you know? Because it's in the Bible. Thou shalt not insert the sin. And to that, the response would be, well, I don't care. Jesus said, let the one without sin cast the first stone. Our reformers already knew that these things were happening. John Calvin would write in regard to church discipline this, if no, if no society, indeed, no house which has even a small family can be kept in proper condition without discipline, it is much more necessary in the church whose conditions should be as ordered as possible. He's saying that there's no society, not let alone your own household, that will not be able to function without discipline. How much more the church? He would continue. Accordingly, as the saving doctrine of Christ is the soul of the church, so does discipline serve as its sinews through which the members of the body are hold together, 
each in its own place. Therefore, all who desire to remove discipline or to hinder its restoration, where, whether they do this deliberately or out of ignorance, are surely contributing to the ultimate disillusion of the church. Simply put, no discipline, no church. So what is church discipline? So when you hear the words church discipline, a lot of people immediately jump to yelling at people or excommunication. Church discipline is correcting sin. Church discipline is correcting sin. What verse 20 is referencing is church discipline. So when someone quotes verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them, know that they are quoting Jesus when he is talking about church discipline. For where two or three. So where is two or three gathered mentioned before? In verse 16, that every charge may be established by two or three witnesses. That's the number, two or three. Verse 20 is about church discipline. Jesus is then saying that when you discipline a member of the body, when you discipline a member of the church, he is there among you. How important is church discipline to Jesus? Well, let's work backwards. What do the verses before verse 20 say? In verse 18 to 19, he says, Truly I say to you, truly means amen. So Jesus is amening this statement before he says it. He goes, amen. That's an emphasis. Hey, pay attention. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Truly, amen. He's amening himself before he speaks. It's an indicator of emphasis, like I've said. Hey, pay attention, especially to this one. That's what he means when he amens a statement. And then these verses might be familiar if you grew up in the church as well. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What does that mean? I used to run in some charismatic circles, and they used to think that this referred to spiritual powers like demons. So I would hear prayers like, I bind you, demon, over New Jersey. You have no authority here. So first of all, first of all, how do you know that there's a demon that's been sent to the state of New Jersey? Do demons adhere to state lines? So this New Jersey demon is like, whoa, can't go across the GW. They've got no jurisdiction here. Secondly, how do you know it's only one? What if there are 73,000 demons over New Jersey and you bound one? Now you have 72,999 demons that have their eye on you. And you may think I'm being a bit facetious here, but I'm trying to merely point out the illogicity of this kind of theology. But most importantly, this binding that is mentioned here has nothing to do with spiritual powers or demons. There is no mention of demonic powers anywhere here from Christ. So that means there is no context, subtext, pretext, posttext, no text. So in the very least, it's a dangerous ideology or theology to hold. But worst case scenario, you might have demons come to you and say, Jesus, I know, 
Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And then proceed to give you the worst beating of your life and leaving you in bitter tears and naked, fleeing, which actually happens in Acts 19. So be careful. Your theology is very important. So then what is this binding and loosing referring to that Jesus assures that he will be with them for? And again, it is church discipline. If you haven't figured this out already, church discipline is a pretty big deal. So how does Jesus start this topic? In verse 15, he starts with one person sitting. If someone sins, you go to them privately. If he listens to you, then you have saved him from a big old whooping. That's from the ESV, the Eugene Standard Version. But the word, you have gained your brother, is another word for spared. You spared your brother by going to him, and if he listens to you, and he stops sinning. But what if he doesn't listen to you? Jesus goes on now to mention two or three. That's when you take two or three people to establish potential charges. That's scary. Yes, it should be. Sin is not a small matter. Your sin is what killed you, and it is your sin that Jesus took upon himself, suffered, and was crucified, and he died. And what do you want to do now? You want to sin more? So what happens If he won't even listen to two or three, then you tell it to the church, and he will become like a tax collector or Gentile. That means you are no longer to associate with him because the Jews didn't have any dealings with tax collectors or Gentiles. Now, when you think on the seriousness of sin, the disease that is sin, the death that it brings, and then you look at these steps that Jesus lays out, some things should start to come to your mind. First, you would think that you wouldn't be able to miss, if you're reading this passage, you wouldn't be able to miss how long this process takes. It's a very long process to first go to this person privately, then take a few witnesses, then to the church, and then dismiss. And secondly, with every step and every process, what's the goal? What's the purpose? The goal and purpose and the outcome you are looking for is repentance. It's for the person to turn back So when we look at with what kind of spirit we ought to approach someone who is sinning, it is to win them back, to spare them. And we use every method we know how, and we use it in love. Paul employs every method in the handbook when it came to discipline, when he was writing to the Corinthians. Why? Because he loved them dearly, and he would not stand to have them fall into sin and be destroyed. So it's out of love the church applies discipline to its members. And the question then is, love for whom? Love for whom? Number one, It's out of love for the individual who is slipping or sinning. He's the one losing grip on his affirmation of faith. It's out of love that he eventually come back to his senses that you would apply church discipline. 
So it's for the person that is sinning. Love for that person. Number two, it's out of love for the church. That might not be so obvious here. It is there, but it's clear in 1 Corinthians 5. Here when the church here when church discipline takes place, the Apostle Paul talks about the church as a whole when dealing with an individual sin. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 7, it says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We must be able to administer church discipline for the sake of the church. Calvin is right when he says that there will be a disillusion of the church if there is no discipline. The leaven of sin will permeate throughout the whole church and the church will cease to be a church. If you had the two marks of the church that we talked earlier, right preaching and the right administration of sacraments, but no discipline, you would effectively be allowing people to do whatever they want. What's the purpose of instruction if no one's going to abide by it? What's the purpose of fencing the table if no one will adhere to its boundaries? Discipline brings those first two marks together and without it, you do not have a church. To that, some people might say, well, what if a person who is under discipline just decides to leave the church? It's like, discipline, I don't need this. I can go to the church down the street. Well, fear of threat of someone leaving the church doesn't mean the church should not continue to obey Christ. If they leave the church, and they happen to be wolves. That's what we have discerned. That's what I've discerned as an elder. Let's say, for example, yes, I will go and tell other churches around us about the dangers this person brings. Has this happened? And the answer is yes, more than you think. If you love the church, you should understand why church discipline is so important. Number three, and this is what this is all about. We administer church discipline because of the love we have for Jesus Christ. Some people think that discipline should be primarily focused on the person that is sinning. I don't think so. Again, let me point you back to the very famous verse 20. There am I with them. In church discipline, Jesus is with us so that we remember why we are doing this, who we are ultimately doing this for. This is in obedience to Christ because of our love for our Savior. But Jesus Christ puts us so seriously, perhaps, because we should take discipline seriously as well. As one theologian put it, when church discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. From the pulpit, you can condemn or I can condemn sexual immorality. But if the church does not remove the person that has committed adultery, then what are we saying their actions are? That adultery is not a big deal after all. That's what we're saying by our actions. 
Not only that, the church's testimony is changed, and it becomes Jesus and adultery can commingle. Then it won't be long before the church looks exactly like the world, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now the next invariable question might be, how can we discern which sins fall under discipline? Last week, I had mentioned outward and unrepentant sin. Let me elaborate on that somewhat further. First, unrepentant. Unrepentant means not willing to come back to the righteous path. It's one thing if you sin. We all sin, but it's a bigger thing if you don't even try to come back. We call that unrepentant. Secondly, outward means either seen or heard. We can't read people's hearts. Only God can do that. And you can't go and discipline someone for thinking thoughts because we don't read your hearts or minds. But recall back to Jesus saying two or three witnesses. That means you're, you have to be able to witness the sin. That means outward. So outward and unrepentant sin is what rises to the level of discipline. Now that we've established these foundational aspects to discipline, why won't churches do it if it's so foundational? Well, it's not so easy. And here I'm trying to sympathize. It's not so easy. No one wants to be bad cop. I sure don't. I don't want to be the guy that disciplines and is the bad cop. I want to be the guy that you invite to the golf course. Please invite me. That's just hypothetical, okay? Not the guy who will say, hey, I think you need to treat your wife better. Hey, I think you aren't, your, you aren't treating your husband with respect. Who wants to be close to that guy? Well, hopefully, the person who loves discipline. And we don't love discipline for its own sake. That's not a thing. We love discipline because of what it produces. 1 Corinthians 9, um, verse 24 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified." A little over a month ago, I tried a little social experiment with some of the folk here, and that was 300 push-ups for 30 days. That means 300 push-ups every day for 30 days. And the rules were no exceptions, no rest days. It's 300 every day for 30 days. But there was one grace given. I'm not a monster. If you missed a day or you didn't complete the 300 for that day, the next day you owed the 300 plus double what you missed. So if you only did 100 one day, then you owed me 300 the next day plus 200 times 2, which would have amounted to 700 push-ups. 
And then if you got dismayed at the 700 and you didn't do any of them, then next day you still owed me the 300 plus the 700 times 2, which is 1,700 push-ups. Uh, and it went like that from there. There are some people here who owe me amount, almost an infinite amount of push-ups. <laughs> of the 20 people that started with me, 14 people finished, which is pretty amazing. But as I was doing these push-ups, I received admonishment from someone I didn't expect. Around day 15, my shoulders were aching, my elbows were cracking, it just didn't seem healthy. I dreaded, like I absolutely dreaded going down to the floor. I am not a light man. When I go down on the floor, it makes a sound. It's very audible. It wakes my baby up. It's very loud. And I would let out a big sigh before even going down to do one push-up. I lamented to my wife, telling her that I don't think I will be able to finish what I started. And this is what she said to me. She said that she has no sympathy for me <laughs> because I wrought this on myself and the 20 others that, that I got and pulled into this challenge, so I better finish this challenge. So I stopped my whining and finished my push-ups for that day. And for every subsequent day, she would ask me if I finished my push-ups. And she was one of those people that helped me finish the challenge, the challenge that I brought upon myself and burdened others with. There are other factors, of course, that help me along. Anytime I would see someone else doing the challenge, they would bring up also the pains that they were facing or have an encouraging word, etc. In the end, all these factors help me finish the challenge. Paul writes about finishing the race. How important is this race? How important is it that you run with all your might? What is the prize that is at stake? Knowing this, how important then is discipline? Now let me address what it means by binding and loosing. Here are the words again from verse 18 to 19. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Just want to clarify, Jesus doesn't say whoever or whomever. He uses a neuter word or neutral gender word and means whatever. He could have used whoever you bind or loose or whomever you bind or loose, but he instead says whatever you bind or loose. So is there a significance to that? I think yes. I think yes. I don't think we are people, I don't think even me as an elder or the head pastor, I don't think we are people that can bind and loose souls. We don't get to say who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Only God can say and only God ultimately knows who is going to heaven and who is going to hell. I hope that is clear. However, however, the church has been given authority to bind and loose. Bind and loose what? Well, in its context, you would think that it has something to do with someone's faith. It's definitely correlated to a person's soul. It's not completely disconnected. So if it's someone 
And it's correlated to their soul. What could it possibly be? And I believe that you can find it is derived from this context, just the previous verse. Just go to verse 17. If you want to understand verses 18, 19, what binding and loosing is, just go to verse 17. If they don't listen, they ought to be like a tax collector or Gentile. Meaning what? That means you break fellowship with that person. The binding and loosing is tied to the fellowship. Now, if you're able to follow me up to this point, this is where it gets really heavy. This then means that when we bind or loose someone's fellowship or membership from the church, God will also bind or loose that was once connected. What is fellowship or membership then? What is it connected to? Blessings. Communion with God. It's what we saw David say to Saul when he, had, when he sat across the ravine by chasing me and me having to flee. I am separated from the fellowship in the sanctuary of God. Let me read to you again David's exact words in Saul, to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 19. Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. By cutting someone off from a church's membership or fellowship, you cut them off from the blessings God has for his people. And God chooses to use the fellowship of the church as a means to bestow his favor and his presence to the church. This is why in Acts 2.42, it says the disciples devoted themselves to the fellowship. It is a big thing to get excommunicated. It is a cutting off from the fellowship or membership. It is when the church can no longer affirm a person's profession of faith. That means you say you believe in Jesus, and yet everything that you are actually doing is spitting on the name of Jesus. We as a church can no longer affirm your confession. If you are excommunicated, that means you are ex. Ex means out of, and communicated or communication, communion, fellowship. Excommunication is an out of fellowship. Again, let me remind you that this is all in the spirit and hopes of this person realizing the severity of their sin and turning back around. Paul even writes it this way in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That seems very severe because sin is very severe. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And this is not the only time we see Paul do this. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 18 to 20, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. 
among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Why were they handed over to Satan? So that they would learn. It's so that they would be saved. God and sin do not mix. We need this discipline. The threat of withholding fellowship is no small thing, but it's better than being damned for all time. In our church, we have set parameters for membership. To join our fellowship, you must agree to submit to the ruling authority of the elders and join in with the fellowship of the saints. And here are just two of the questions you are asked when you are baptized. These are just two of the questions. You are asked a lot of questions when we baptize you, but just here are the two. Do you promise to make diligent use of the means of grace to continue in the peace and fellowship of the people of God and with the aid of the Holy Spirit to be Christ's faithful disciple to your life's end? To which the baptizee would say, I do. Here's another question. Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? And if you believe it, you say, I do. To be a member or be baptized. So this is what it means to be a member of our church. If you're a Christian, let's say you grew up in the church and you found our church, which most of you are because our church is only about five and a half years old. If you are someone that has been baptized, that means you were a member, made a member of the church when you were younger. By coming here, you are transferring your membership to this local church. By transferring membership, what we are saying is we affirm the baptism that you've had before. So membership has to do with baptism. And to be a member or be baptized, you have to agree to these terms. It's like if you get married to someone, there are terms that you agree to. You will be faithful to your husband or wife till death do you part. And you say, I do. And it should be a joyful thing to say, not a reluctant dragging your feet, I do. If you know the joys that marriage brings, you shout, I do. But I get it. That marriage is still serious and heavy. I get it. Marriage, there will be rough times that you will have with your spouse. It won't always be sunshine every day. And your spouse can and will make mistakes. But there is a joy that is reserved for you inside of marriage that you will not find in any other kind of relationship. You will not be able to produce the fruit that you can and you ought to outside of marriage. And it's the same with church membership. The church isn't perfect yet, but there is joy in joining the church fellowship and submitting yourself to its discipline because it ultimately points you to sanctifying yourself. It points to your sanctification and it points to glorifying God. Some of you that are listening today aren't members of this church, and that's okay for now. For now, it's okay. But prayerfully decide, but decide with seriousness and with haste. There's no time to lose. Find a church that has at least these three marks, faithful preaching, faithful administration of the sacraments, and finally, faithful church 
discipline. Find that church and submit to it because your life depends on it. And because God has blessed us, He has blessed us by not leaving us to our own devices, but He has given us these means of grace by which we are to grow and mature. When you think about these three marks, I wonder if you can, if you're like me and can't help but to exclaim, what a good God we serve. Now, disciples of Christ, let us serve Him faithfully. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your graces by which we are to learn, grow, mature, become holy. Instead of being given in and given over to the sin that kills and destroys, you give us new life, you give us purpose, and you give us this unfailing hope that is in Jesus Christ. Help us now to adhere and obey your words, the words of our Savior, as we follow you all the days of our lives. Let's take this time to pray. And pray that our lives, day by day, may be in submission to God. And by his help and by his grace, we may be able to grow as Christ's disciples in every way he has ordained it to be so, in joy and in submission to him and to the governing authorities that he has placed over us, namely the church. Let's pray.